So welcome everyone. This is Christy Balsell. Today is July 9th, 2010. This is our monthly MitoAction meeting, and I'm very excited today to welcome Dr. Frank Kendall from Atlanta, Georgia, to discuss with us a little bit about muscle biopsy. Uh, muscle biopsy testing is a topic that is relevant to every adult and child and family who is affected by mitochondrial disease and is very confusing and in some cases controversial as well. And uh, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Kendall, who's from the virtual medical practice in Atlanta, Georgia. I just want to talk a little bit about Dr. Kendall, and then she can say a little bit more herself. So first of all, welcome, Fran. Glad to have you with us today. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kendall has a new practice in Atlanta where I feel that I can say um, that she's really offering a very personalized um, and approach to medicine and particularly to focus on the care of patients who suffer from mitochondrial disease. And um, as a patient advocate and as a mother, I really appreciate that about Dr. Kendall because I think that this is a, um, a journey and having that personalized support is so important. And um, not only is Dr. Kendall, you know, a great person and, and um, really has a great manner and cares about her patients, but she's also really one of the most experienced people that I know and has been um, seeing mitochondrial disease patients for many years and so has um, a lot of experience to be able to contribute to her decision-making. And I always appreciate Fran's perspective and feel that she's a great objective and smart smart cookie, so I appreciate having you here today, Dr. Kendall. Maybe you can say a few words that I've missed about yourself, and then we'll jump right into our topic about muscle biopsy. Okay, thanks, Christy. Well, you, you did a great job. I'll have to send you the check later. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but, um, but again, thank you very much. And, and as Christy indicated, uh, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. I hate to admit that, but um, we all get older, I suppose. And uh, I, I trained at Boston Children's, and I was... Um, I moved to Atlanta about 12 years ago, and about a year ago, I started my practice for exactly the reasons that Christy mentioned, and that is to provide um, extensive, personalized care for patients with mitochondrial disease, and um, and I'm, I'm loving it, and I think my, my patients are as well. They feel like they have a partner in this journey, so uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to care for those that I care for, and, um, and I'm thrilled to be here today to talk about something that's that is, as Christy indicated, at times can be controversial and confusing, at, at, uh, at the very least, to patients. So, um, without further ado, I'll, I'll just kind of launch in. This is, this is in, to some degree, a, a relatively laid-back talk. I've had this talk with my own patients many, many times. So, um, I, I don't. It, it'll, it'll be patient-friendly, so to speak. So, wonderful. First, and to remind everybody, we'll have a chance to have some questions and answers after we go through this part. So, um, if you have a question, that you can hang on to your question, or you could email it to me directly, and I can ask it on your behalf if you don't feel comfortable speaking up. And to do that, you would email me at director at mitoaction.org. So, Fran, thanks so much. And you're right. Let's jump right into the topic. Okay. Well, obviously the first question is, is what, why are they done? What are, what exactly are muscle biopsies and, and why are they done? Well, patients who come to, to physicians such as myself with questions of mitochondrial disease can come um, and fall into typically two general baskets. One is they may come with what we call kind of classic mitochondrial clinical symptoms and fit into the, one of the subtypes of mitochondrial disease, such as MELAS or MRF. And for those of you not familiar with disorders such as those, again, they're very well-described subtypes of mitochondrial disease. Now, remember that mitochondrial disorders, that's an umbrella heading, and it simply means lack of energy production or decreased energy production. So there are many, many hundreds of subtypes of mitochondrial disease. So again, some patients come with, a, with clear clinical symptoms that fit them into a basket. And in most cases, 
um, we can often do things like a blood test to diagnose somebody with uh, Milan's or Merck, and that's all that, that may be required. Uh, once in a while, the blood doesn't detect it. But there are some, um, some new DNA testing um, using what we call next-gen sequencing that detects very low levels of mutation. So, again, for those patients, usually a blood test is, is all that's warranted. However, most patients, when they present, don't clearly fit into that basket. They have any number of clinical symptoms ranging from weakness and fatigue to enlarged hearts to liver dysfunction to autonomic dysfunction. So any number of things that, that clearly are linked to mitochondrial dysfunction but don't necessarily fall into one of the cleanly described mitochondrial disorders. So in those cases then, as clinicians were faced with, well, how do we diagnose these patients? Um, in the past, and, and still to some degree today, the gold standard has been muscle biopsies. Well, you're going to ask, why a muscle biopsy? Why do we need muscle? Well, in order to look at the energy-producing enzyme pathways, we need to get a tissue that's very energy-dependent. Well, the tissues that are most energy-dependent are the brain, the kidney, the liver, the heart, and the muscle. Well, I, you don't need me to tell you that most people would only pretty much surrender muscle if they needed to contribute a tissue. Nobody's going to do a brain biopsy or a heart biopsy. So that's, that's why muscle is obtained. And what typically happens is muscle is removed, and then there are a number of tests that are done on that muscle. And it depends on where and when and how the muscle is obtained as, the, as to the number of tests that are done on those muscle samples. But traditionally, the basic things that are done are histology, which is to look at the structure of the muscle. And sometimes you can find changes that are suggestive of mitochondrial disease. For instance, something called ragged red fibers, which is just a proliferation or accumulation of mitochondria, um, can be seen. Sometimes you see extra fat in the tissue. But, you know, again, it, it, it's not always diagnostic, but it may give you some clues. Keep in mind, though, that histology can be completely normal in mitochondrial disease. And then the other thing that's typically done is enzymology. And that is, again, to look at the energy production pathways and using depending on the lab, control samples at the same time and using a fancy instrument, we measure a given patient's ability to pass energy through that pathway. Now, one of the things that a lot of patients may or may not understand is that muscle biopsies are not absolute. And what I mean by that is that muscle biopsies have false positive and false negative. And so, again, like every other test in science, nothing 100%. So when you're talking about an invasive test, people just need to be aware of that. Um, part of the reason I know that for a fact is we certainly know that some disorders, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and um, some other diseases, can give you secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. Also, in the last year or so, I've re-diagnosed at least three or four patients who were thought to have complex one defects with completely different disorders. So whether or not the lab was incorrect or whether there was just something about their other disorders that caused some dysfunction in their mitochondria, I don't know the answer to that question. But my point is just to let you know that if you go through the muscle biopsy and you get the results, it's not always absolute. But if indeed you do get abnormalities, it can certainly be a clue to your clinicians and your physicians that this is what's going on. That's the basic utility of the muscle biopsy. Now, there are a lot of questions that a lot of folks face in regards to fresh versus frozen muscle samples. As we all know, there's only a few centers in the country that do uh, and process fresh samples. Well, most of us don't live in those metro areas, so when we're contemplating undergoing testing to include a muscle biopsy, it may require, if you want to go the fresh route, travel and expenses incurred surrounding that. Some people can't do that and don't have that option, and they undergo frozen samples instead. 
So what's the difference between the two? Well, years ago, when I first started in this field, there was a lot of questions about the freezing process and that it affected complex worms and caused uh, problems with assaying complex worms. But that's been addressed over the years. And if there is a protocol in place for the appropriate collection of the sample, that part of it is typically eliminated. But then the second component of it is what are you able to do on a fresh sample versus a frozen sample? Well, there are some additional tests, such as respirometry and some other things that some laboratories, like Cleveland Clinic, can do. And I've spoken to Dr. Hoffel at Cleveland Clinic about this, and what he's told me is that in about 20% of cases, he finds something on his studies that using the fresh tissue that he would not have detected on the frozen sample. So again, it sounds like from a uh, diagnostic perspective, again, about 20% of changes that would have been missed, at least in his experience in his lab, with standard just enzymology and histology on a frozen sample are picked up using the fresh sample. So that is a portion and that's something that needs to be considered for you as a patient as you're um, deciding what to do for you and your family. But again, as I indicated, these, these tests are not absolute. Things can go wrong. And so, you know, the sample may not be processed right even in a fresh sample setting. So that needs to be considered. Another big question or concern, an issue for a lot of people, are the cost factors for mitochondrial muscle testing. And that's very lab and center dependent. Some laboratories, again, depending on um, what you're getting, will give you histology and basic enzymology, and that can run you anywhere from five to $10,000. Now, insurance typically covers at least part of it, but as we all know, we've got co-pays, out-of-pocket, out-of-network issues, so that can add up. Other laboratories, again, depending on what it is that they're doing, can do a number of other tests that may or may not add really to your clinical diagnosis and care, and I've heard that some muscle biopsies are costing over $50,000. So again, depending on your insurance and co-pays and other things like that, you could have large out-of-pocket expenses. So many people have to consider all of those issues when they're making decisions about muscle biopsies and whether or not they're going to get it completed or they're going to go to a specific laboratory to get it completed. One of the very exciting things in muscle uh, testing currently is that there is a researcher who has developed a assay using buckle or cheek swabs. And essentially what this individual does, and I'm not going to give out his name because I, he'll kill me if he gets inundated, but uh, basically what he's, what he's doing is you take a big Q-tip and scrape the inside of your mouth and take off some of the skin cells, send them frozen, and he's doing assays, mitochondrial assays, so the enzyme pathway assays on these buccal swabs. Now, his data looks very good, and I've spoken to him, and I'm sending my patient samples to him at this juncture. His initial data looked at 26 patients who had had previous muscle biopsies, so he had the results of those patients. 23 out of the 26 directly correlated with the muscle results. The three that did not were from the same laboratory. So there's some question as to is there an issue in that laboratory? Was there something going on with those patients? Meaning some of them were quite young, so that can affect the assays. So there were some issues, but it was contained to one laboratory. But nonetheless, his results look very good and they're very encouraging. Right now, he's doing complex one and complex four assays only. So for those of you who are familiar with this, or for those of you who may not be, there are five complexes 
of the electron transport chain or the energy production pathway. And remember that a complex is merely just a group of chemicals. In science and medicine, we like to use fancy names, but at the end of the day, all it is is a group of, of chemicals that come together for a purpose. That purpose is to produce energy. I think of each complex as uh, many jigsaw puzzle pieces that, that come together, again, to produce a particular enzyme or chemical. So right now, he's doing complex one and four only, but he is expanding that to include all the complexes. He's currently doing this on a research basis only, but will be expanding it to have a clinical test sometime in the, um, in the very near future. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own practice and what I do and why I'm doing it currently with my patients. This is not meant to necessarily apply to any or all of you. Um, at the end of the day, you have to find a physician or a clinician that you feel comfortable with and trust and feel that you can work together in a partnership. But because muscle biopsies are invasive, because they can be extremely costly, because they are not absolute, because I've re-diagnosed a number of patients who were off the half, pure mito disease with chromosome deletions and other gene mutations, I am currently not doing invasive muscle biopsies in my patient population. I am using the buccal swab test as a screen for those patients. Part of the reason, aside from all the ones I just provided you, is the last component of this in terms of definitive mitochondrial diagnosis. The trend right now in mitochondrial medicine is to really find the gene mutation, the cause for mitochondrial disease. Again, remember that mitochondrial disease is an umbrella setting. There are hundreds of genes that come together to make all of the chemicals and proteins that ultimately produce energy. When we look at the patient population, and this is apparent to any of you who have this diagnosis, in the past you would see complex one children or adults for that matter, and you would see people completely across the board. Some of them would have lead disease, some would just have some muscle weakness, others would have hypotonia, others have a lot of GI issues. Well, why does, do all these people with the seemingly same problem have so many different clinical symptoms? The reason for that is going to be linked to the gene cause, which means that a gene makes a protein, a protein then does something. And in complex one defects, it affects that complex one, but that doesn't give us details about how else it affects the body. That's going to be linked to the gene diagnosis. That's important to understand what the disease means for an individual patient. Because again, right now it's really hard to compare apples and oranges. But what's driving it to some degree in terms of the gene diagnosis for most of us is the fact that there's going to be more and more clinical treatment trials that, that are going to require gene diagnosis to confirm that somebody truly has a mitochondrial disease and doesn't have a chromosome deletion or something else, as I've discovered in, in some of my patients. When we do treatment trials for patients, and this will be apparent to anybody, is that you have to be very clear about what a patient has because how they're going to respond and what you do with that information is dependent on understanding and knowing that information. For example, let's go back to the complex one issue that we discussed. If you have 50 patients with complex one defects, whose clinical symptoms are across the board, and we have drug X. And let's say that two out of the 50 respond to drug X, but everybody else does not. Well, from a statistical perspective, anybody would look at that data and say, well, that drug doesn't work. When in actuality, it may indeed work. 
It may work for a specific gene mutation because maybe the two people that responded had the same mitochondrial gene mutation that's resulted in their disease. I've explained to my patient population that this approach to more clearly define mitochondrial disease from the gene perspective is similar to understanding other diseases that we're all familiar with. For example, cancer. We all know that cancer is abnormal cell growth, but the way we treat colon cancer the way we treat lung cancer, the way we treat other forms of cancer are very different. So the goal is to eradicate the abnormal cell growth, but it's very dependent on the type of cancer. And that's very similar to mitochondrial disease. We have found with a subtype of mitochondrial disease, like Milosh, for example, that giving those patients arginine supplements stabilizes the blood vessels in the brain and decreases stroke activity. But that's very specific to MELOS, at least at this point in time. And that's going to be the case for moving forward with many, many subtypes of mitochondrial disease. There's probably going to be very, very disease-specific treatments. So having said all that, that's the reason why, for me, my goal is to find the gene for my patient population and clearly define the subtype of mitochondrial disease they have using some guidance from the buccal swab. Because, for example, entomology can give you clues about where to look from the gene perspective. In patients who have Lee disease, who have a complex four defect, for example, about 75% of those patients have a SIRF1 mutation. So if you have Lee disease patients, and let's say you do a buccal swab, and they have a complex 4, then you know which gene to go for. So that's where they can provide you guidance. But again, using a non-invasive study as your jump-off point for my patients and for the way I'm approaching it, it's been extremely helpful in helping me find those genes without putting the patients through significant testing, cost, and other issues that can be associated with these invasive muscle biopsies. The other component in terms of gene diagnosis, just to finish up with that, is that in the past, we've known only and been able to test primarily for the mitochondrial genes, and they're the ones that come through the maternal or mother's line. We've been able to test them for a number of years. There are a number of labs that can look at them. But that only contributes a handful of the genes that are involved in mitochondrial disease. Most genes that cause mitochondrial disease are nuclear, and nuclear genes are those that come through mom and dad together. Okay, so just keep that in mind that a handful comes through mom's line, most come through mom and dad together. Some labs do some nuclear gene testing, like Baylor, for example. Some of these names will be familiar some, to some people. Genes like Paul G1, for example, the SURF1 gene, those things are nuclear genes. But there are currently several labs, Baylor is one of them, uh, medomics, transgenomics, they are all rapidly working on developing expansive nuclear gene panels that will essentially be able to screen for almost all mitochondrial nuclear genes. These panels, I've been told by some of the labs, they hope to have them available in the next several months. But if anybody is familiar with labs and research and development of tests, you usually double that. It's kind of like a contractor who's doing your kitchen. If they tell you it's six months, it'll be 12 months. So I suspect, though, within the next six months, maybe sooner, some of these nuclear gene panels will start to be rolled out. And they will be completed on blood. So, again, there's no need for invasive testing in those cases to do these extensive DNA and gene panel analysis. So 
in kind of a, a summary, muscle biopsies have been the gold standard for many years because for many years we had limited ability to screen nuclear genes. The, mito the mitochondrial genes we could look at, the nuclear genes, maybe 50, but there's hundreds of them. Now, technology is getting to the point where we're going to be able to look at that. Enzymology can be helpful and point you in certain directions in terms of gene testing, but because of the development of some of these new non-invasive enzyme testing, they may become more and more obsolete for the whole purpose of preventing patients from having to go through invasive, costly testing. I often tell my patients the way mitochondrial medicine is evolving is similar to what used to happen with something known as cystic fibrosis. When I was a resident many moons ago, when a child would come into the hospital and we were concerned about um, CF, we would do something called sweat tests. Because kids with CF excrete extra sodium in their skin. So we would do something called a sweat test. They were always difficult at the time they were, you know, unequivocal, but that was all we had available to us. Now we know where the CF gene is. And if a child suspected to have cystic fibrosis, most of us will just look at the gene directly and bypass the sweat test. And that's where this field is going in terms of diagnosis for patients. Now, understanding some of the functionalities of the complexes, again, has utility, but some of that utility is more meant for the research setting and not necessarily from a clinical perspective. So that's my general take on muscle biopsies, their utility, how fresh can detect some more cases than, than frozen samples, the cost factors, and some of the emerging trends in this field that may make some of these tests obsolete for many of you, but at least give you some information to contemplate as you're making decisions for you and your family. Well, thank you, Dr. Kendall. I think that, you know, especially the idea that you can use some of these new tests as a jumping point to be more focused mm -hmm. on the testing, I think that that is um, really useful information. I'm sure that some of our um, callers have some questions, so I'm going to open up the lines. I want to just remind everyone of two things. The first is that you can use star six to mute and unmute your line once I open those up so that we don't have a lot of background noise if you're in a place that's noisy. And the second thing is I would encourage you to, um, and although you have very specific circumstances for your question, to try to frame your question in a way that is um, more general so that it can be relevant to some other folks as well who are um, listening in. So let me open up the lines and we'll have some questions. All right, so everyone is, should be able to uh, speak up now. So um, who would like to ask the first question of Dr. Kendall? We'd ask that you just briefly introduce yourself and then ask your question. Um, so go ahead, who would like to ask the first question? Um, my name is Jennifer Ali. Um, my daughter, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, was just recently diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease. Um, we're in Lafayette, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And we go to Riley's Children's Hospital, and we've also been up to Cincinnati. Um, on her muscle biopsy report, it came back with um, decreased function, or what, I guess what Riley diagnosed her with was decreased function of complex 1, 3, 4, and 5. Mm -hmm. um, but I know there's no, like, specific category that she fit in. And then doctor, the doctor in Atlanta that did the muscle biopsy said that, um, it seemed like um, suspected um, complex five. My question, I guess, would be: Is I like I love the fact that because that's my, been my concern the whole time is okay. Well, let's find out what specifically she has. You know what? So the fact that all this testing and stuff is coming out and and just how you 
um, are searching for the, I guess, the chromosomes, the chromosomal defect. I had said but however, whatever, however, is diagnosed and to treat it that way, um, that that is important, right? Like I'm not <laughs> crazy because my doctor isn't at Riley Earth. It's like we treat every mitochondrial disease the same. I'm like, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, there's common threads in in patients with mitochondrial disease, but they can all be different. As you, as you already know, and as I indicated earlier, that's likely linked to the gene diagnosis for the patient. And um, as I indicated, that ultimately it really is going to be linked to that. Um, for, for example, you know, without going into details, there is a drug trial uh, that's, that's undergoing currently for um, Lee disease patients. And I just, for one of my more severely affected patients, I just found her gene mutation, and that's going to enable her to be enrolled. And she's, she's going to be going out to um, Stanford in the next couple of weeks. So, but the, the drug company is limiting it right now to the specific disease group because their preliminary data looks um, good for this disease group. So they, they will, they may expand it, but again, they're not going to open it up and say, oh, it's you know, complex one, all complex one patients for all the issues that I indicated earlier. Um, I, you know, I think it's okay to approach all mito patients in a generic way for certain things and based on the information we have today, but ultimately I don't think that's going to be the case. And as I indicated, I'm pushing for very personalized medicine and care for my patients. That's awesome. So, super. Well, uh, Jenny, thanks for asking that question. Um, so, our, another question from someone who'd like to ask Dr. Kendall about muscle biopsy. So this is Dawn Murphy, and um, my daughter was uh, diagnosed by fresh muscle biopsy with a defect in complex one, and I was diagnosed by fresh muscle biopsy with defect in complex one and three but they haven't been able to locate a gene. So I'm not sure, you, you know, so they we were told it could be secondary um, or it could be primary. I mean, I, I just don't know, like, where we go from here. Mm-hmm. Well, your, your example is the classic example of, honestly, why I'm not doing or pushing for muscle biopsies at this point. Because you're told exactly what the fact is, is that it could be primary. And I I don't know for those listening if people understand what primary and secondary mitochondrial disease means, but I'll I'll explain that very briefly. Primary mitochondrial disease traditionally is considered um, a disorder in which a gene that produces one of the proteins that's involved in energy production is affected. Okay, so it's direct, it's a mitochondrial protein that doesn't work. A secondary mitochondrial defect is one in which there is a gene that's mutated or changed that doesn't have anything to do with energy production, but in some way it makes the cell sick or not function appropriately, and so that when you do these assays, you find abnormalities, but it's not because it's a primary mitochondrial disease. So, again, because I've re-diagnosed a handful of patients just in the last couple of months, um, and because of what you just mentioned, that's the reason why I'm doing less invasive testing, because all it's going to do is give you a clue. And in your case, what is going to have to be done for you hopefully, ultimately, will be to find the gene cause for your problems, and that may require the development of these new um, expansive nuclear testing before you know for sure. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, um, great questions, and I hope this is all helpful for everyone. Um, and Dr. Kendall, I really appreciate you being so thorough in your, in your thoughts. Another question for Dr. Kendall? Hi, my name is Barbara. I'm calling from Las Vegas. I have a 18-month-old that's being diagnosed with mitochondrial myopathy. 
Where where do you go from? We did a muscle biopsy and it came up um, inconclusive. Because <laughs> now it's suggested to do another one to do other different types of testing. I just don't know what to do. Okay. Um, can you say, explain to you in any more detail what inconclusive means? Was there a problem with the sample processing? Was it just that nobody knows how to interpret the results? It's, it's both. Of the, some of them, both. some of the things came up. Um, they they want to retest, and some of them just like not able to be determined. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in your particular case, I, you know, again, I would recommend to my patients that they not go through another biopsy um, for reasons that you know. I mean, children have to undergo general anesthesia. Uh, in order to have these biopsies. So unless somebody was able to do a needle biopsy, which some people are starting to do that, um, but I would probably do some of these buccal swab studies uh, okay. and, and see if it shows any abnormalities. Because, again, at the end of the day, in order to really understand a given diagnosis and a given vital patient, you're going to have to have the gene diagnosis. Now, sometimes in some of my patients, I have I follow one little boy with autism who had a muscle biopsy that was was reported to be negative, and I did mitochondrial DNA sequencing on him, and he actually had a mutation. So again, they're not they're not absolute, and it depends on. You know, from my perspective as a clinician, it depends on how strongly I feel that the patient may have the disease as to how much I'm going to push. You know, I don't, I don't put people through testing for the sake of saying, you know, I can do something. I'll tell people and say, no, I, I think this is, you know, we should wait. And, and some of my patients are in a holding pattern right now waiting for the nuclear gene panels to be developed, knowing that. We're going to know within the next year or so whether or not they truly have minor disease that can be identified from a nuclear perspective. So that's the other route that you can go. You know, there's, a, there's a number of places that do mitochondrial DNA sequencing, and again, the nuclear gene panels will be available. So you could you could possibly do that, or your physicians could do that. But personally, I, I don't I don't recommend that patients undergo repeat biopsies. It's too it's too traumatic. Oh, thank you. Uh, all right, another question for Dr. Kendall? Yeah. Oh, this is, I'm sorry. Uh, this is Irina Campbell in Albuquerque. I have a question regarding insurance companies and whether they usually pay for the gene testing. Uh, well, it's a, good, it's a good question, and it, it, it very much depends on your insurance company and the laboratory that's doing the testing. The various labs have various contracts with insurance companies, and sometimes it could be state-dependent, too, meaning that, like, some labs may have, um, you know, I know with one of the labs that I use, they, they accept Georgia Medicaid, for example, but yet um, other labs that do similar testing don't. So I, I end up being, I have to make decisions based on those types of things. But it is very very insurance dependent. What you do is you have to contact your insurance to find out if they have any exceptions for um, genetic testing. So that's, that's the only way to find out for sure. But many insurance companies do cover it. I see. Oh, thank you. Okay, and then Robert, it sounded like, was that you about to ask another question? There was a gentleman about to ask a question at the same time as Irina. Would you like to ask that question next? Maybe not. Does somebody else have a question for Dr. Kendall? I do have. I have a question, Mrs. Roberts. Okay. Um, who, once the muscle biopsy is completed, who owns the tissue? Who owns the muscle? Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't hear you, Robert. I'm um, Who, who actually owns once the biopsy has been done? The muscle. Well, obviously, it's the patient's tissue, but you have to be very, very careful because some of these laboratories, you know, when you get procedures done, as we all know, you sign these release forms, but you have to look very carefully at some of these release forms for some of these laboratories because what they'll, some of them say is that you have no claim to your tissue after it's taken. 
Um, so just be very careful about that. Um, I actually have some of my family four muscle biopsies because each position that they see requires their own muscle biopsy and it's difficult to get physicians to share from one facility to the next. Um, I, again, Robert, I'm sorry. Christy, can you hear him better? He, you... just, he was saying he has had four, someone oh. in his family has had four muscle biopsies because basically oh. each physician requires the tissue to be their personal access tissue, and that's really um, difficult for that patient and his family. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I, I feel very strongly about that, meaning that a tissue from a patient belongs to a patient. And I wouldn't go through a procedure like a muscle biopsy in which the tissue is being used for diagnostic purposes without having, you know, knowing that I could get access to that tissue if I needed it to send it to uh, another researcher, for example. Um, so most of the times you can opt out when you sign the form. So just, just, be, just be careful about that. But there, there is, um, just to throw this out here, the Mayo Clinic is developing a mitochondrial biobank that I think will be fabulous. And I, and I talked to um, Dr. Um, Ogle, Ogilvy at the, the UMDF meeting when I was out there last month in Arizona. And basically what Mayo is doing is they're collecting blood and samples from Mito and suspected Mito patients to categorize them and catalog them so that researchers can gain access to tissue and to blood on patients to expedite research. So, again, if people have extra tissue that they want to make sure is involved in, in research, that's what I would do. But, again, this is kind of long-winded, but I would personally I would make sure that um, before I had the biopsy that I, I would opt out for that so that you have control over your own tissue. Okay. I appreciate that. All right. Great questions. I think we have time for... Uh, one, maybe two more questions. So, uh, who would like to ask a question? I have a question. Go ahead. My name is Rebecca. I'm in California, Southern California. Um, I took my son in the in the year 2001 to the Cleveland Clinic, and he had a muscle biopsy with Dr. Bruce Cohen, and he was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease complex two. Um, a year later, they took some of that frozen tissue. That from his muscle biopsy and re-ran it and couldn't find the complex to um, the diagnosis the second time. And so they removed the complex to diagnosis and says he still has mitochondrial disease. We just don't know what kind. Mm -hmm. uh, what would cause that to come about? And now that it's been 10 years later, should we try and find out what type of mitochondrial disease my son has, or just leave it as unspecified? Okay. Well, um, it's always difficult to know what, what happens in a lab or, or, or other facility in terms of what could have actually caused that. But, again, it goes back to my earlier point that these, these tests are not absolute. You know, I think a lot of times when we walk into this stuff, we think that it's absolute, that it's, it's black and white. It, it's yes or no, but that's not really the case. Now, you know, there could have been um, problems with their controls the first day, for example. The first time they ran it, like, for example, what, let's say their complex two assays and their controls were low so that when they looked at your sons, it looked ab abnormal. Or perhaps there was something happened to the tissue. I mean, it, do, it doesn't, I, I, you know, I don't, it's hard to say, but it, it sounds a little unusual that it would be as normal and then be normal. I could see it being the other way around, that it did great. But again, without knowing details, I'm not sure what that means. Um, the doctor explained to me that because there was so many complex twos coming back positive, they reran all the complex twos a year later. Okay. Well, that's that fits with what I was saying, that there could have been a problem with the assay. Oh, I okay. And yeah. with uh, uh, clinical diagnosis, it's an obvious um, mitochondrial disease, but would it, is it beneficial to have it identified as to what type or just, undi and, you know, 
<laughs> diagnosed mitochondrial disease. Yeah, in my opinion, it's important to to, to move it towards gene diagnosis in all patients. That's just that's my that's my personal approach. I am being a dog about that with my patients because okay. I, because for the reasons that I said, I, I see where the, the field is going. It's going to be subtype specific for treatments, and if, if a child or an adult, for that matter, is out there with a with a non-specific diagnosis. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get into clinical treatment trials, and or you're not going to know even if compound X works for, you know, every patient with gene Y mutation, if you don't know if you have that. Correct. And since my diagnosis, I've been diagnosed, my daughter has, and now my daughter's had a child and my grandson, and it's all non-specified. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would definitely, you know, I would encourage you to to consider doing, you know, if they haven't done gene diagnosis or haven't looked to do that, that's what I would, would encourage you to do. And again, as the gene panels become more and more expansive, it's going to be easier to do that for, for patients. But, okay. you know, I, I, would, I would encourage you to have it more clearly defined. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to thank you for an excellent discussion. Well, thank you, Terry. I appreciate that. So that's a great segue, Terry, into me saying to um, Dr. Kendall, do you have any other closing comments or thoughts that you'd like to impress upon the listeners today? I think that the major thing, Christy, is, is that knowledge is, is power as a patient. And just be well-informed. And, and just understand the limitations of what it is that you're being told or not told to do. So, because at the end of the day, you as a patient, as a family, as a parent, have to be comfortable with the decisions that you make. Some of this stuff, there's no do-overs. And so you, you, you want to, to know that you're comfortable. And if the person you're dealing with, whether it's a researcher, it's a clinician, it's a laboratory person, if they're not willing to be open, honest, and provide you the answers to your questions, then go someplace else. Well, I think that that's great. Great advice, Dr. Kendall. And I, um, I want to point out to everyone that uh, not only will the recording and a written summary of today's call be posted on the website, um, but right that will take me a few days to do, but right now you could actually read um, a little bit more about muscle biopsy in a document that's uh, written by Dr. Kendall. There's a couple ways that you could see that. One is to go to the mitoaction.org uh, website and under the first tab about mitochondrial disease, um, look in that menu for the link that says testing. So under about mitochondrial disease on the first uh menu option on the top bar and then and you'll find a um, an informative page and then Dr. Kendall's uh, website as well also has some great information um, about this and a more complete PDF that's about specifically about muscle biopsy and really great consumer oriented family oriented advice about um, making that decision. And Dr. Kendall, your website is virtualmdpractice.com, correct? 
That's correct. And we also we also have an info act, and, and we're happy to answer questions for folks. Um, I, sometimes it takes me a little while just because I get inundated, but um, we're happy to answer questions. Um, and that's very generous of you, Dr. Kendall. And I will also share with this group um, some exciting news that Dr. Kendall and I have recently um, talked to a genetic counselor who has worked for several years with Dr. Doug Wallace. And she has offered to also be available to do some teaching about the under interpretation of um, these types of tests and to help us, you know, start to dig into this a little bit and learn about it. So I'll be coming out with an email about that in the next couple of weeks, basically asking you to submit your very specific questions, even um, copies with your name marked out of your test results so that she can create kind of a um, an answer, you know, forum to those questions. And so I encourage you all to be on the lookout for that. And the best way to stay up to date um, is to be sure that you're getting emails from us, which would be why, by going on the homepage of MitoAction and on the left-hand side it asks you um, to receive support and e-news and enter your email address there, and that would be the place to enter your email address and um, select which groups you'd like to be a part of, and that's the best way to stay up to date with these kinds of announcements. Um, Dr. Kendall, is there anything else you wanted to add that, that's on your site that would also um, benefit patients? Do you have a similar sign-up? Um, you know, we just we just have a, a ton of information for for good or for bad. <laughs> I just we just put a lot of stuff stuff out there. It's I have a shared, I think, and you have an active Facebook page also for those of you who are on Facebook. Um, I actually just linked your uh, your page to our page on the Mito Action um, Facebook page too, so folks can find you that way also. Yeah. So I'm. Um, so I'm on there, but um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to everybody. I hope it's been useful. And again, as I indicated, it, it's about empowering you as, as, a, as a person and as a patient and family to make the right decisions for yourself. And as I indicated, you just you need to find a partner that's willing to walk the walk with you and to um, provide you the information that you need. And if you don't, then then find somebody else. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. And Dr. Kendall, thank you so much for sharing this information and for being so warm and genuine and thoughtful in your um, discussion. Uh, if I can be of help with anyone, my email is director at mitoaction.org, and so um, I'm also happy to try to help you. And I uh, encourage you all to join us again next month. Dr. Bruce Cohen from Cleveland Clinic will be joining us to talk about hyperbaric oxygen therapy on the first Friday in August. So uh, everybody have a great weekend. And, again, Dr. Kendall, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a good weekend. Don't sweat too much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.